listening to Robert Wright's Non-Zero Podcast. Hi, Simon. Hi, Bob. How are you doing? I'm doing good, and I'm looking forward to our conversation today. So am I. Let me introduce us. Uh, I am Robert Wright, publisher of the Non-Zero Newsletter. This is the Non-Zero Podcast. You're Simon Baron Cohen, a clinical psychologist, a professor at Cambridge uh, in England, author of a number of books, including recently uh, The Pattern Seekers, How Autism Drives Human Invention. Before that, The Science of Evil on Empathy and the Origins of Cruelty. That's the American title. In Britain, it's Zero Degrees of Empathy. Um, I wanted to start by talking about a work you did uh, well before either of those books back in the 80s, both because they build on it uh, and because it speaks to what uh, regular readers of my newsletter knows, a special interest of mine, which is cognitive empathy. Um, and by cognitive empathy, I should, I should say, I mean, just trying to understand what's going on in other people's minds, kind of perspective taking. It's not to be confused with emotional empathy. Uh, mm-hmm. which is about your emotional reaction to what you think is going on in their minds, especially their emotions. So if you say, I feel his pain, that's emotional empathy. If you say, I think he's in pain, that's cognitive empathy. If you say, I think he's pretending to be in pain so that I'll give him money, that's cognitive empathy. Um, and uh, so... Yeah, let me just interrupt you there. Sure. Because I, I, I love the way you've made that distinction. But, you know, maybe one little uh, caveat if you say something like, I feel your pain, mm-hmm. that could just be words, right? Sure, so, sure. So what you called emotional empathy is more in your gut, you know, and it's in your, in your heart. It's not it's, just your behavior. You right, know. It's, a, it's the fact of feeling. I, what I meant was you are reporting emotional empathy if you say, I feel their pain. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but, uh, but the tricky part we've got already got started into this topic of empathy is being able to separate cognitive empathy which is kind of as you said the recognition element you know can i recognize or infer what you're thinking mm-hmm. of and then i call it affective empathy or emotional mm-hmm. you know am i feeling something that's appropriate to what you are thinking or feeling yeah so they are, and they're very, they're very closely intertwined. Uh, and your your work in the '80s spoke more uh, to cognitive empathy. The the, theory, the term you used was theory of mind. We can get into that, and and whether there's even a subtle distinction there between those two things. But uh, you, you know, one thing interesting about the work is that I think there's a tendency to take cognitive empathy for granted because we do it all the time. We're always, you know. We interact with people. We kind of pick up on their vibes, get a sense for how they're reacting to things we say and so on. And we often don't think about it. It's a largely unconscious process. And one thing your work uh, highlighted in the in the 80s, the, the paper I'm going to ask you to talk about, is that we shouldn't take it for granted. Uh, because for one thing, there are people who don't have it or don't have a well-developed version of it. And for another thing, that fact that that not everyone has it suggests, along with some other evidence, that, you know, maybe this is kind of a, 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 a piece of mental equipment, so to speak, designed by natural selection. Uh, and uh, it's, a very, it's a very important uh, part of life. Um, yeah. And, and uh, that, that at least was, a, was an interpretation of your work. And I want to ask you whether you still kind of sign on to that. You're, you're, you wrote a, a short kind of essay book called Mind Blindness in the 90s. And I think there was an introduction by John Tooby and Lita Cosmides, two pioneering figures in evolutionary psychology. And this was a big emphasis of theirs, that that uh, there's a theory of mind, uh, what they called a module. Doesn't mean it's in a particular place in the brain. Does mean it's kind of a specifically engineered piece of uh, mental equipment. So anyway, why don't you start by first of all correcting anything uh, you want to correct in what I've said, but but uh, more broadly talking about this this work in the eighties. Yeah, so that's a great way into the conversation uh, because I think what happened in the nineteen eighties is that a whole bunch of different academic disciplines started talking about what you just referred to as theory of mind, 
but which today we might call cognitive empathy. Uh, those disciplines included developmental psychologists, so kind of starting to think about when do kids who are typically developing start to understand that other people have different thoughts and feelings to their own. It included primatologists, you know, who started to raise the question about, you know, are we are humans the only species that can put ourselves into somebody else's shoes to imagine somebody's thoughts and feelings? It included philosophers, particularly philosophers of mind. Um, you know, and it included, you know, some of the clinical academics like psychiatry and clinical psychology who started thinking about, well, if you if this process, this ability to imagine someone else's thoughts and feelings, if that wasn't sort of functioning optimal, optimally, what impact might it have for, for the person's ability to cope in the world, you know. Mm -hmm. it, it was a very interesting time. I was, I arrived in research just at, at that time, 1982, um, was when I was doing my PhD. Um, and I think the other thing you said was that we do this all the time. Like, you know, we're doing it right now. We're kind of mm -hmm. mind, we're mind reading and we do this in every relationship that we have. Um, you know, whether we're communicating or whether we're, it's just a, a friendship or whether it's with colleagues, you know, or even if you just go to the store, you're having to imagine the other person's thoughts and feelings. But nobody had really articulated it. And what's, what the scientists started doing was saying, well, let's not take this for granted. It's actually incredibly complex. Like, how does the brain actually do this? But, it, but we seem to do it effortlessly all the time. Mm -hmm. We do it in every social interaction, every day. Uh, so that, that kind of opened up a whole field of research. And I guess my contribution was to also apply it to autistic kids to raise the question, you know, um, whereas a typical child might, might not struggle with imagining someone else's thoughts and feelings, what is, what is, the hap what is happening with autistic kids? And, and we did a whole bunch of studies, mm -hmm. um, experiments to test that question. And the, I think the, the big paper was called, Does the Autistic Child Have a, quote, Theory of Mind? I was in Cognition, co-authored with a couple of people. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. And that used a particular paradigm, as we call it, in, in, you know, in psychology or in science. You know, it was a protocol, which is called the false belief test. You know, at what point does a child understand that somebody else might hold a belief about the world that is a false belief. It's not a correct. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of, that was introduced into developmental psychology, almost as the litmus test mm -hmm. uh, of whether somebody could separate their own beliefs from somebody else's beliefs. Right. And there was a whole industry of research in the 80s and early 90s looking at what seemed to be the case, which was at around four years old in typical kids, mm -hmm. there's that kind of sudden realization, that's how it looked, that prior to four years old, kids would fail that test. And after four years old, a typical child would understand exactly what was meant. Their beliefs might be different to someone else's. So a classic false belief test would be, you say, John and Mary are in a room. John puts something in folder A, and you convey that Mary saw that. Uh, Mary leaves the room. John moves it to folder B. Mary comes back in and wants to find it. What folder does she look in? Uh, yeah. Or, or it might be, you know, there's a jar labeled uh, cookies. What, are, you know, <laughs> what do they think is it? Anyway, uh, and by the way, ChatGPT4 can pass the, these uh, classic uh, tests. It seems to, in some sense, have uh, theory of mind capability. I mean, leaving aside the yeah. question of whether we can talk about it, understanding things. Um, yeah. But but so you found you're, 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 you, that that uh, that autistic people tend not to uh, perform well at these tasks, and you, yeah. you 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 asked whether maybe that was kind of fundamental to what we think of as autism. Is that right? Uh, yeah, I mean what we what we found back then, you know, and I'm sure this is going to bring us into the conversation about what do we mean by autism uh -huh. back then. 
And, you know, is, is the way we use the term autism today the same as it was almost 40 years ago? Um, but back then, what we found was that autistic kids struggled on, on, on a test of understanding someone else's beliefs relative to a typical child of the same so-called mental age uh, and relative to non-autistic kids who might have learning disabilities, like kids with Down syndrome, for example. That was, that was the comparison group in that early study. Um, but, you know, and it kind of opened the question about whether some of the difficulties that autistic kids have on autistic people, because it is a disability, uh, it's not just a disability, but part of autism is a disability. Is the disability to do with theory of mind, imagining someone else's thoughts and feelings? And today we would ask the same question, you know, is the disability, does it involve levels or uh, of cognitive empathy? Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we could, we could fast forward just so that we don't get stuck in the 80s. Because, you know, uh, these days we use tests which are very different to that. Mm -hmm. um, partly because in those days we were, we were testing autistic kids who not only were autistic, but also often had some level of learning disability. Um, whereas today, the people we call autistic, you know, many of them do not have any learning disability. They do have, they, they are autistic, but they might have um, an IQ in the average range or above. Mm -hmm. so, so you need different kinds of tests to really sort of... But do they tend, even these, these high IQ... Uh, autistic people tend uh, to events the thing you found in the 80s? Yeah, I mean, as an example, we, you know, let's fast forward to a different kind of test that looks at cognitive empathy called the eyes test. So the full name of it is reading the mind in the eyes test, where we present the, the participant, the person we're assessing, with a series of photographs just, just of the eye region alone. Because it turns out that if I'm trying to figure out what you're thinking or feeling, the best place to look is your eyes. Mm -hmm. I, could your, I could look at your mouth, I could look at your body language, but actually the eyes are a really good window into what you're thinking or feeling. So we developed this thing called the eyes test. Mm. And um, multiple studies, dozens of studies, have shown autistic people struggle with that test too. That's to say, compared to a, a non-autistic group or other comparison groups, control groups, on average, autistic people score lower mm -hmm. than non-autistic people on that test. Okay. So, uh, as you said, the conversation has changed since the 80s. I mean, for one thing, it's in a certain sense become more delicate, uh, but there, there's a whole kind of neurodiversity movement now and a big argument about whether autism should be considered a disorder or just more of a difference, and uh, if those are the right uh, terms. And at the same time, more evidence has accumulated. Your work has gotten pushback, as work tends to, to do, as to whether it was too simple or whatever. Uh, so can, can you tell us whether your... Uh, your conception of the work you did in the 80s and what it means has, yeah. has changed very fundamentally or, or what's the most fundamental thing that, you, that has changed about it? If yeah. So, so back in the 80s, um, the focus was very much on how do we, can we explain autism in terms of what is underlying their social difficulties? Because autism, as many of your listeners will know, affects social relationships, social skills, communication. But I think that, you know, what shifted a lot in the 90s and subsequently was the awareness that autism doesn't just involve disability in, in social relationships mm -hmm. or communication. You know, what was being neglected was differences in how autistic people process information, even if it's not social information. You know, so in the 90s, we started doing work on attention, for example, in autism. Mm -hmm. The autistic people have um, 
kind of superior attention to detail. So it's not a disability. Mm -hmm. It's actually a strength and sometimes even a, a talent. And if you give them the classic tests of attention, autistic people score above average on attention to detail, memory for detail. In my recent book that I published in 2020 called The Pattern Seekers, mm -hmm. it also argues that autistic people have excellent pattern recognition skills. Um, so alongside their disability, there's also a difference. So I don't see the, um, I don't see this as a kind of either or. Is it a mm -hmm. disorder or a difference? I think, I, think it, I, think it's, I think it can be both. I wouldn't use the word disorder at all, by the way. I'm okay. using the word disability just because I think the word disorder, I know it's common in the US, right. can be quite stigmatizing. Yeah, uh, yeah, I'm sure it certainly can. The um, so, you know, yes, as you said, uh, you know, there there are a lot of very high performing people so, who are somewhere on the autism spectrum. Silicon Valley is said to have a disproportionate number of them. Um, Elon Musk has said he is on the spectrum. I want to talk yeah. a little uh, about him in a second, but first, um, are 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 the two things you mentioned related? In other words. The ability to get, I guess, engrossed in the task of pattern seeking and other cognitive tasks uh, that can be uh, lead to great productivity. That and the the difficulty with, or or at least uh, failure to focus so much on like what other people may be thinking or feeling. Is there some kind of trade off there? Um, so that that seems to be the case. Um, so if we just kind of reflect for a second, you know, the nature of the social world is it's always changing. Like you and I have no idea what, you know, where this conversation is going to go. And this conversation has never happened before. So it's all kind of new territory. So you might need different kinds of processes in the brain to be able to anticipate what might be about to happen when it comes to social relationships, uh, adapt very quickly. You know, social relationships are happening in real time and you have to kind of make very fast decisions about what to say, what to do. Whereas, you know, outside of the social world, often, you know, inanimate objects stay still and you've got time to really look at the patterns, whether it's your computer or whether it's rocks in, the, in, the, in, in nature as you walk through the mountains or whether it's uh, looking at weather patterns, which are changing, but you know, may not be changing as rapidly as what happens in the, in a social situation. Mm -hmm. um, so it could be that the brain is deploying very different machinery, if you like, for making sense of the social world versus how we explain and predict what's going to happen in the non-social world. And I talk about this again in the pattern seekers. Yeah. I talk about this. I talk about how the brain uses today. We would call it the empathy circuit. It's a network of regions in the brain which allow us to do very rapid computations about what someone is thinking or feeling, but also integrate how we feel in response to what they're thinking or feeling. That's one piece of like um, neural machinery which allows us to get by in the social world. And then when it comes to pattern recognition, we might be using a very different kind of set of processes in the brain, which, um, which are kind of looking for repeating patterns in the world. Um, whether it's about how your bicycle works, or whether it's about why a particular recipe in your cooking works, there'll be a sequence of events that you can track, and you can observe, and you can repeat your observations until you spot the pattern. And autistic people might be very good at that, you know, at using that, those sorts of processes. They may be even better than non-autistic people. That's the thesis. And where they can really make contributions in the world because of their assets or aptitudes. Whereas, you know, when it comes to having a conversation with six people uh, at a party, you know, everybody talking 
in you know maybe over each other or slightly different threads in the conversation, keeping track of who knows what or who shouldn't know what, and what people might be fe feeling. That's where autistic people might struggle. Okay, uh, so let's talk about Elon Musk a little. Uh, he, as I yeah. said, he has said he's on the spectrum. Um, Let's start with a, a, a relatively minor thing. There's something bigger I want to talk about. But that is that uh, he has said that as a kid, he struggled like he didn't get sarcasm. He couldn't right. tell when people were kidding. Now, that seems to be pretty characteristic of autistic people. In your mind, is that just a, really a straightforward implication almost of a kind of a theory of mind deficit or, or something that doesn't need a special yeah. ex explanation? Uh, yeah, so sarcasm is just one example of non-literal language so if it's like raining outside and i and i say something like oh it's such a beautiful day you know you shouldn't take my words literally because i'm being sarcastic what you should focus on is is the intentions behind my words mm -hmm. and so that's that's theory of mind but there's only one example yeah um you know there's lots of examples of non-literal language like metaphor or idioms or mm. or a or humor, all kinds of stuff. Um, and whilst we're on the topic of Elon Musk, <laughs> you know, we've got, you know, he's he has announced that he's autistic. I think that's very positive for the autism community and for society because it's it's helping to destigmatize autism. And it and you know, in some sense, he's a wonderful role model because he's he's also an inventor. So he's got that fast, that fantastic pattern recognition uh, skills or aptitude. But you know what we should realize is that um, autistic the autistic community is very diverse. So in in many ways he doesn't represent the majority of autistic people, and we've got to be very careful that when we talk about autism and autistic people, that we don't end up with a stereotype represented by Elon Musk. He might right. represent one one sort of slice of that spectrum. But, you know, when you meet autistic people, the the thing that strikes you, especially these days, is the diversity. You know, right. the the differences. That some autistic people have minimal language. They may have they may have good intelligence, but they've got language disabilities. Some of them maybe greater concrete type of pattern recognition like working in a bicycle shop fixing bicycles uh, but some may, may be able, you know some may be able to do higher education phds or whatever mm -hmm. so there's that huge kind of variability and we just got to be careful not to fall into the trap of yeah yeah either. and on that point before we get back to elon musk are there more doubts either in the academic community or in your mind about how coherent a syndrome uh, autism is, you know, this happens sometimes where, I mean, let's, let's, uh, just to put it in a medical context, I know there are a lot of people who say, no, this isn't a pathology and so on. But if you look at things that are, or that are said to be, uh, th sometimes something that is for a while considered a single syndrome will later be viewed as actually, you know, almost two separate syndromes. And, and these yeah. are, these are very hard things to figure out, uh, and it, it sometimes it's not clear whether there's even an underlying truth to, to talk about. It's so complicated, but has there been a shift of, of, of view here? In other words, it's kind of just, are they saying, well, autism is really complicated, or are they saying maybe autism isn't a thing, per se? Um, so some of your listeners may know that in 1994, the American Psychiatric Association introduced another label Called Asperger's syndrome. Mm -hmm. And Asperger's syndrome was meant to be a subgroup on the autism spectrum, uh, but where people with Asperger's syndrome had all the characteristics of autism, but without the delayed language or the learning difficulties or disabilities. They had average IQ or above, and they talked on time when they were kids. Uh, whereas other autistic people, or delayed in their language, you know, they may not have spoken their first words by two years old, may have been later than that, and they may they may have had an IQ below the average range, so they were autistic and had learning disability or intellectual 
disability. Mm-hmm. You know, sadly, I think uh, we've reverted to a single word, autism, to cover all of that breadth that we're now talking about. Uh, because Asperger's syndrome was uh, removed from the American Psychiatric Association classification system in 2013. So is autism uh, spectrum disorder now the term? And is that taken to encompass the full spectrum? Yeah, that's, that's right. Um, I said earlier in our conversation, I don't use the word disorder. Right. That's just a matter of choice. Um, there's a lot of autistic people who are also expressing that preference. Okay. You know, they're, they're saying, just call it autism. Mm-hmm. Because the word disorder sounds like it's something negative. And these days, you know, a lot of autistic people are saying, well, autism is just part of who I am. Mm-hmm. And the fact that the science is showing that it's strongly genetic suggests it's part of a person's makeup. But it doesn't mean, and we've said several times in this conversation, autism is both a disability and a difference. There are some things that autistic people struggle with. There are other things that people, autistic people don't, don't struggle with. They actually right. excel at, you know. So, um, so I just call it autism these days. Okay. So back to Elon Musk. Um, you know, I wrote a piece in the Non-Zero Newsletter uh, talking about him and, and cognitive empathy. Uh, and, and honestly, I was kind of using him as just a way into the discussion of the relationship between cognitive empathy and power, because there have been, uh, you may be aware of the work of Adam Galinsky at Columbia, who argued that, um, he, he did an interesting experiment. He, experiment, he, he, he uh, manipulated people's senses of power. Uh, you know, he, he had one group, you know, they, they recalled and wrote down, uh, a time when they had really kind of been in charge and powerful. And then there was a second manipulation also done on this group that had to do with actually giving them giving them control of a situation, power over people and so on anyway. And then there was a different group that had different uh, manipulations. But then he, he asked them all to, um, I think, write an E on their forehead with a, with a marker, okay? And what he found was that uh, and and when you think about it, you got two ways you can do that. You can write it so that it looks like an E to other people, or you can write it so that it looks like an E from the inside of your mind, like as you look out. And he found, uh, and there have been other findings suggesting correlation between power uh, and and uh, and cognitive empathy, but he found that the people with power were less inclined to write the E so that other people could read it. But the question I had about that is, does that show, assuming the, the, the correlation is correct, and, and of course, there's obvious application to Elon Musk, one of the most powerful people in the history of the known universe. Um, but the, uh, the, my question was, does that mean that people with power are not good at cognitive empathy or they just care less what other people think of them? After all, they don't have to care as much what most other people think of them. There's really, there are very few people who in a meaningful sense can do damage to Elon Musk, you know? I mean, you know what I mean? I mean, if you have power at the workplace, you're the boss. And yeah. and and at a meeting of people, you know, there are a lot of people around the table who are worried about what you think of them. You're not mm-hmm. focused on that so much. You're the boss. So yeah. anyway, whatever, I don't know how conversant you are in the power and cognitive empathy literature, but but there is in any event the question yeah. of to what extent what seems to be a cognitive empathy deficit could also be described as just more in the way of indifference as to what other people think of you. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot to kind of tease apart here. Uh, I, I don't know Galinsky's work, so I, I shouldn't really comment on it in, in detail. Um, the, the, the experiment that you described of asking people to write on their forehead and then just kind of uh, taking that as an indicator of whether they are writing it from their perspective or from the viewer's perspective. Mm-hmm. Interesting, but it's, um, you know, that's more of a, it's a, I suppose it's a test of, 
Are you primarily thinking about your own views, your own view, literally, or somebody else's view? Uh, so sometimes that's called spatial perspective taking. Mm -hmm. As for the relationship with power, I mean, it's fascinating, and I haven't given it a lot of thought. Um, you know, I think you're. I think what you're asking is if if you're if you're someone who's very powerful, maybe you don't need to take into account right the, the views of others because you almost feel untouchable. You know, um, I don't know. I th I think that empathy may be um, also independent of uh, of of power. You mm -hmm. could have you could have very powerful people for whom empathy really matters, and you could have very powerful people in whom empathy is kind of a low priority. Um, and we can easily imagine. Um, examples of both of those types of 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 leaders. You know, let's mm -hmm. let's just let's contrast. Um, I don't know Nelson Mandela, who was a very powerful person, not just when he was in prison, but also when he became president in South Africa. But he always spoke with remarkable empathy, both for the victims of apartheid, but also for. Uh, for all South Africans, he was thinking about the white community, not just the black community. Really, really. So that's kind of an example where it doesn't quite fit with this idea that simply mm -hmm. because you're powerful, yeah, um, you would have less empathy. Well, and certainly getting to a position of power often involves uh, cognitive empathy. I mean, Bill Clinton uh, is, you know, I think is very good at reading rooms, uh, very good at reading people. Um, and I think a lot of politicians are, and that's how they get power. I think the argument of people like Galensky is once you've got power, yeah. uh, you event at least less cognitive empathy. But I mean, who knows? Uh, it, it it does. Um, can I can I bring this back sure. to autism for a second? Sure. Because um, we started off this conversation with you distinguishing between cognitive empathy and emotional or affective empathy. And, um, you know, we could make the comparison between autistic people who struggle with cognitive empathy. That seems to be what the evidence is showing. And psychopaths or people with antisocial personality disorder who seem to have very good cognitive empathy. That's how they're able to manipulate their victims, but struggle with the emotional empathy. They don't seem to care about their victims, and that's how they're able to to hurt them. So uh, I think it's just kind of important in this discussion that when we're talking about autistic people and talking about empathy, we're not saying autistic people are like psychopaths. You right. know, if you've, if you've met autistic people, the first thing that strikes you is, is often how gentle they are and how they may be confused about the social world, but they don't tend to go out and hurt people. Whereas if we think about the classic psychopath or someone with antisocial personality disorder, they're looking for opportunities for um, self-profit, let's say, and they may not care how they get it. They may right. be very, they may be very devious. They may, they may, they may be excellent at deception. You know, how does how does the guy get into your house? Mm -hmm. he, he might pretend to be. Um, it's coming to fix something. You fix the, the electricity in your house. He's pretending. And once he's in there, you know, he might, he might mug you. Mm -hmm. So autistic people don't tend to play these mind games. They don't tend to engage in elaborate deception. And they don't seem to be motivated to hurt others. So it's just an important part of the conversation so that listeners don't go away with this idea that somehow autistic people are are, are cruel or unkind, because that's the opposite message from the research. Sure, um, and, and that uh, you know speaks to your book, The Science of Evil, in which uh, you argued that cruelty often results from uh, uh, low affective empathy, which makes sense, and it underscores the fact that cognitive empathy is not necessarily a good thing. I personally think, uh, on balance, the world would be better if there were more of it, but in the wrong hands, it can be a bad thing. I mean, if you don't if it isn't paired with 
affective empathy or at least uh, something that functions as a conscience, uh, then then it could yeah. be a, a very bad thing. There, there have been a lot of, uh, uh, you know, bad and successful politicians, for starters. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. No, absolutely. Um, so, again, you've mentioned a couple of things which are worth elaborating on. So one is about conscience or, you know, what does a person have a moral compass and how do they arrive at a conscience or a moral compass? And, you know, for autistic people, you know, I'm, I'm very struck that autistic people often have a, a very highly developed moral compass. They're often the first to speak up if they witness any injustice and they want to do something about it. You know, so they want to rush to help the victim who's, who's perhaps been badly treated. So despite maybe having struggles with cognitive empathy, when it comes to their morality, they're, they're often highly moral. So how have they ended up with such strong morality? And it may be that they're actually using a different route to get there. They're using maybe a rule-based approach. You know, what are the rules for being a good person or being a, a bad person? You know, what are, what are the rules by which I want to lead my life? And holding other people to those same standards and being the first to call out if someone is breaking the rules and, and behaving badly. That doesn't necessarily require kind of highly developed cognitive empathy, but it mm -hmm. does involve having very clear kind of moral, a moral compass, for want of a better word. And and then again, if we think about psychopaths, you know, so they, they're very good at the deception. Their cognitive empathy is highly developed. Where is their moral compass, you know? So just kind of that, that contrast of how, I think you're saying empathy could be one route to morality, but there are many routes to morality. The, the important thing is that we end up with a moral compass, how, however we get there. Mm-hmm. And and a tendency of autistic people to speak out in cases of injustice could conceivably be related to the cognitive empathy uh, thing in the sense that I think often what keeps people from speaking out, even when they perceive injustice or they think something is wrong that nobody's talking about, is that they read the room. In other words, they perceive that not that what they say is not going to be popular, and they also care about that they, they, they don't like being unpopular and, and this gets back to the question of how hard it can be to disentangle you know reading the room and caring about what the room uh thinks but in any event it, you know it, it could be that you're more inclined to speak out uh against uh, injustice if you're not reading the room right yeah um yeah i mean i'm thinking about uh the young swedish climate activist Greta right. Thunberg right who, who you know at least before the pandemic had captured the world's attention and uh, admiration for speaking out against powerful leaders uh, who were neglecting uh, the climate and causing and, and uh, not not addressing the climate crisis she's autistic um she's got you know, she's got that fantastic focus which many autistic people have you know, her, her deep interest is the environment and, and the climate. And she's not going to sort of lose sight of that. She's got the courage to speak her convictions. Uh, I think you're saying maybe, maybe her autism gives her an, an advantage. Mm -hmm. that she, doesn't, she doesn't have to feel when she's in Congress or in the House of Parliament here in the UK. Uh, she doesn't have to feel some sense of deference or making sure that her views align with everybody else's. She can just speak the truth as she sees it. Mm -hmm. and, and by the way, uh, I, I read somewhere, somebody, it was more in the way of conjecture, uh, but saying that in their experience, autistic people often have more emotional empathy than average. Is, the, is there any actual evidence of that, that they're more sensitive on that front? Um, certainly I've come across studies showing that emotional empathy is intact in autistic people. It's, it, it, it doesn't differ compared to non-autistic people. So uh, 
it, you know, I think I've, I've certainly heard of the idea that autistic people may have heightened emotional empathy. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it needs more research. It's a very difficult thing to study, actually. Um, cognitive empathy may be a bit more straightforward in terms of how you, how you measure it, how you test it. Mm-hmm. You know, affective empathy is all about what is the person feeling at the time in response to someone else's thoughts and feelings. And that we've, so far, we've got quite limited met- methods or tools to, to study that. Mm-hmm. Um, now, yeah. affective empathy varies in accordance with our relationship to people. You know, we're, we're uh, more likely to feel the pain of our offspring than of uh, other kids on the playground, especially, say, kids who, who, who seem to be giving our kids trouble. You know, uh, in fact, those kinds of people, once we put them in the kind of enemy category or rival category or whatever, uh, you know, the, the, the polarity may, may switch and we, we may take a, a kind of pleasure in their misfortune. Um, so uh, that's a, you know, there's a reason schadenfreude is, is a term. It, it happens. Um, and uh, well, first of all, have you thought much about those dynamics, the way affective empathy varies in accordance with our relationship to people? I'm also interested in the way cognitive empathy does, which I think is is probably a less studied or understood thing, but is also uh, interesting. Yeah. Uh, so in, in my book, The Science of Evil, which, as you said, in the UK, goes by the title Zero Degrees of Empathy, I was kind of looking at what are the biological and the social factors that can influence how much empathy you you feel towards mm-hmm. somebody. Um, so whether you treat somebody with kindness or with cruelty. And, you know, we could talk about the biology, but I think more relevant here is this, the social factors. Um, so let's, you know, you, you've highlighted an example there that, you know, you've got a relationship with your, your own child you may not have a relationship with a stranger who's bullying your child. So you immediately prioritize your empathy is more focused on your own child's, you know, what what is my child feeling rather than what is the bully feeling. Mm -hmm. If we take, if we take the extreme case of the Holocaust, you know, because often it's thought of as like an extreme example of human cruelty, where we had a leader, Hitler, who was putting people into the gas chambers uh, was, was intent on killing people, particular groups in the population, which included Jewish people, but also people with disabilities. You know, he seemed to have, he had no empathy for certain groups in the population. But, you know, it's often said, you know, that the, Nazi, the Nazis who were working in the concentration camp in their relationship to Jews and other people who they were killing, uh, they may have, may, sh- may have shown no empathy. But when they went home at night and read bedtime stories to their child or asked their wife or husband, how was your day today? They were, they were perfectly able to show empathy. So it is very specific to the relationship. I think that's your point that empathy always operates in a specific relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, make, that, that changes our view in a way, because instead of looking at a person's overall ability to empathize, we, we, we need to start looking at these social dynamics. You know, why was it the case that in Nazi Germany that many Nazis could end up with zero empathy towards Jewish people, right? It wasn't true of all Germans, um, you know, and yet they could show empathy towards their own family, their, their, their next-door neighbors who were not Jewish, etc. You know, that, that speaks, I think, to the role of social factors like ideology and propaganda. You know, if you've got a political regime that is telling you that a particular group um, is unwanted or is subhuman or is um, a threat. Mm-hmm. We, you know, you can imagine politicians whipping up this kind of hatred towards minorities very easily 
and then people kind of internalizing those images, those stereotypes of the other. And that affects their, you know, that's a social factor influencing their empathy. Yeah, I think the threat thing is a particularly uh, important theme, you know, often used in these in these situations when you're trying to whip up hatred toward a group. I, I mean, I would say, that, would you would you agree that somebody like Hitler, they are playing on and manipulating something that's part of human nature, which is uh, a tendency to have very different feelings about people you see as a threat, right? I mean, we've all we've all had the experience, or maybe you're different. Tell me, have you ever had the experience of some like bitter rival? Maybe you don't have bitter rivals. I don't know. Have you ever had anyone in the world who suffered some? not necessarily some physical distress, but a career misfortune. And you thought, and you kind of, you know, got a little lift out of it. That's never happened to you. That hasn't happened to me, but I know, <laughs> I know what you're describing. <laughs> you, you've seen people who, who, are, who are not as good as you. You're aware of those. Okay. Well, anyway, congratulations on, uh, on getting, getting through life so far without experiencing that. Uh, but uh, uh, yeah, let's go back to your example of, whipping up hatred towards particular groups. I think mm -hmm. we saw we I think we saw that when Trump got elected, you know, he, the highest thing on his agenda was building the wall between the US and Mexico. And you know, Mexicans were seen as this kind of group that was going to threaten the US and um you know, and it, you know, it even extended to separating young kids from their parents when they were being detained. Uh if they were seen as illegal immigrants into the US. And, you know, that was qu quite hard for many people to kind of uh, really accept or come to terms with. How could your belief about a particular group, in this case, illegal immigrants, you know, translate into how you, how you handle young kids who might be Mexican? Um, so, uh, you know, I think we don't need to go all the way back to the Holocaust. That's the whole point. Mm -hmm. to to look for these examples of how, um, whether whether it's kind of political manipulation or whether it's um, just, you know, beliefs that people have about particular groups. You know, you see it in almost every conflict. If you look at the Middle East conflict, I'm sure in Israel and Palestine, you could find people that hold very negative views about the other community. But it may be because we've had decades almost 100 years uh, in that conflict of negative stereotypes being generated about the other community so that it becomes possible to, mm -hmm. to use physical violence, for example, towards them. Yeah. And I think, don't you think there can be in that kind of context a relationship between cognitive and affective empathy? In, in other words, we seem to be bad at just putting ourselves in the shoes of people once we've defined them as the enemy. Uh, in yeah. other words, uh, you know, whatever they're doing that you don't like, which may include violence, yeah. they, they often, they have a reason, they have a story they would tell, uh, well, you're oppressing me, I don't have rights, whatever, but yeah. there's a, you know, once they're your enemy, you are not inclined to seeing their bad behavior as a consequence of circumstance of situation. I mean, this kind of gets into attribution error, actually, and that that being one mechanism that that uh, that, that kind of adjusts in accordance with our relationship to people. And yeah. ultimately, uh, I mean, we, maybe we should get into what attribution error is. But but first, why don't you? you, you there is this relationship, right? Like not not understanding all of the factors impinging on the behavior of people you yeah. don't like can make it easier to be indifferent to their suffering. Absolutely. So another way of putting it is that, you know, even when someone does something, um, does something bad, they have a backstory. And if your empathy is kind of turned on, you might be curious to know what is this person's backstory? You know, even the guy who breaks into your house, mm -hmm. you could easily you could you could easily react with almost by reflex with anger and a desire for revenge. You know that this guy's broken into my house, and uh, or you you might be curious 
like, what is this person's situation? Should I feel some kind of sympathy for their situation? Have they come from a, a childhood of hardship? And have they been a victim themselves of something, you know? Um, so I think, um, I think it, the, the evolved reflex is just that when somebody harms you, you, you want revenge. And that often just perpetuates a conflict. And I think, you know, what, you know, switching on your empathy to say, why is this person angry with me? Or why is this person behaving in that way? Immediately is triggering the empathy circuit. Mm -hmm. You know, what is, what is this person's intentions and their beliefs and their emotional state? Right. Even just speculating about the apparent aggressor's state of mind. I think could could dissolve conflict and lead to a different outcome. So I think this is kind of taking us into an, another direction, which is that whenever we have conflict, whether it's with a neighbor or whether it's between countries, we've talked a few about a few examples. You know, there may be a role for empathy in conflict resolution. And you mean? Cognitive or affective or both? I mean, most people would say affective. That seems relatively obvious, but it may be that the, the route to more affective empathy is cognitive empathy. I think so. So if we think back to the Israel-Palestine conflict, you know, when we had two leaders getting into the same room together, Arafat and Rabin, you know, these are two men getting to know each other and finding out about each other, asking each other about their families, you know, uh, developing a relationship, that's very different to just seeing them as the enemy. Mm -hmm. You know, when we, when we were talking earlier about Mandela, you know, he got to know the clerk, the president of South Africa, you know, and the representative of the white community, really, in South Africa. But in that relationship of the clerk and Mandela talking to each other, you know, sitting and eating together, learning about each other's families, you know, that changes the whole way that um, the politics unfolds. It's no longer seeing them as the enemy, now seeing them as a, a person with thoughts and feelings. So mm -hmm. I think empathy, empathy could, and I would say that that is a mix of cognitive and affective empathy. In mm -hmm. most of our interactions, we don't, it's not one or the other. These two things are working in tandem. Right. No, there's interaction in, in, in both directions. I think the less affective empathy you feel towards someone by virtue of the category you put them in, again, the less inclined you are to, to uh, fully explore the causes of their behavior. And then the less you understand the causes of their behavior, the more you are to just attribute that to them being evil. I mean, you know, to get back to the playground, if my child bullies someone, I'm going to look for well, an excuse, so to speak, but it may be an accurate one. She didn't get her nap or she's insecure and trying to impress kids who will be impressed by the bullying or whatever. But if some child bullies my kid, I don't look for those explanations. They're just a bad kid. Yeah. I think there's, a, I think there's scope in our schools for uh, cultivating empathy. We tend to expect that our teachers in, you know, in primary school, in high school, they're going to be focusing on teaching our kids to read and write. But actually, equally important is empathy. You know, like if there is a bullying situation in the school, I think teachers could bring the kids together to really understand what was the victim feeling, what was the aggressor feeling, you know, and can we talk about it? Mm -hmm. And that might, that might be very healthy for, for those kids in particular, but generalizing for society. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you, we established earlier that uh, cognitive empathy can be put to bad uses by, for example, psychopaths. Um, is it still your view that, on balance, the world would be a better place if, if there were more cognitive empathy? Of course, ideally, you would say, well, yes, if the good people had it and the bad people didn't, that's what we want. But, but I, I mean, in do you even think about this? Is there overall uh just a, yeah. a deficit globally in cognitive let's just focus on cognitive empathy for the moment yeah so you know another way of asking this question is what is cognitive empathy good for 
you know, and if we take a kind of evolutionary perspective, one argument is that animals that have cognitive empathy, it, it brings with it a whole suite of behaviors, um, such as deception, which we've talked about. If you want to, you know, if I want to deceive you, I've got to make you believe that something's true when it's actually false. So that requires kind of cognitive empathy. But cognitive empathy also allows teaching. You know, if you want to be a good teacher, you really need to take the perspective of the novice who you're teaching, whether it's a child or somebody less expert than you. So you need to make sure that your language is uh, communicating, that the listener uh, has enough information to be able to follow, you know, and you need to be able to monitor what does the other person need to know. So cognitive empathy al allows for teaching. It allows for cooperation. You know, if you think about what happened in the pandemic, I thought that was a really interesting example of how the whole world, like 8 billion people, decided uh, in a period of a very short period of time, like in a week, to shut down or lock down. But those kinds of large-scale cooperative activities you need you need to understand the other person's intentions goals belief systems to be able to formulate a shared plan you know can you imagine another species doing that so so it's kind of a testimony that cognitive empathy has got its bad sides you know we've talked about psychopaths deceiving and using using cognitive empathy to manipulate but it has its good side in terms of uh, social cooperation, uh, communication at a very high level. Um, yes, planning, social plans, um, and uh, maybe diplomacy as well, actually. Oh, I think, uh, yeah. <laughs> this is one reason I think the world needs more uh, cognitive empathy. I mean, for example, there's a famous uh, dynamic in political science called the security dilemma, where Things the other country does that are defensively intended, you take as offensive, sometimes because you misread their intention, sometimes for other reasons, but but it's a common problem. And then you do things that you think of as defensive. They read those as offensive. And so you get these arms race dynamics, and sometimes it leads to war. I mean, yeah. I, 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 uh, it's, I think it's a huge problem yeah. in the diplomatic world. No, absolutely. But in terms of, you know, would the world be at a better place if we had more affective empathy? I would say yes, or emotional empathy. You know, so cultivating that in young kids, um, because let's say you've come from a background where you've been abused or neglected, and you feel angry with the world, and there are there are people like that. You know, the danger is if you leave them in that state, that angry state, they may go on to hurt other people. You know, there's famously. You know, the, the victims of bullying, many of them grow up to be bullies themselves. No surprise, you know, they felt badly treated and they want to get their revenge or a sense of control in the situation. So, you know, I think, you know, nurturing affective empathy and cognitive empathy, but nurturing it in our schools, in our community projects, in, in families, to really sort of think about how can we make sure that empathy doesn't get lost right. along the way. Because the absence of empathy, we've already given plenty of examples, yeah. uh, could, could be really serious. So I have to ask you about, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with Paul Bloom's book, Against Empathy. It's an, it's an easy title to misunderstand. I mean, uh, the subtitle is The Case for Rational Compassion. So Paul's not against uh, feeling bad about people feeling bad. He does think that the way uh, affective empathy is deployed, it can have downsides, including just kind of a disproportionate allocation of resources to individual cases of one person's suffering. Yeah. And the whole world focuses on it, and all the meanwhile, there's all these other uh, people dying, yeah. and you're, you're ignoring them. Um, but but are you did you are you familiar with the argument? Um, yes, I yeah yeah. No, I, I even reviewed his book. I, I liked his book. I, I thought that the title of his book against empathy was a bit misleading. And I thought, as you just pointed out, the subtitle was actually a bit more accurate, which is about 
rational compassion. Mm -hmm. Rational compassion is a nice way to say you need empathy, but you also need logic. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's it's not one or the other. That when you're making decisions about what is what is good for you and what is good for society, you know probably the the best mix is to use empathy, but also use logic and and reasoning. Mm -hmm. Uh, So. Um, you know, I think I think both have their place, but having one without the other, you know, you could argue that what was going on in the Holocaust, when when the Nazis were building these incredible um, machines for killing people, was, you know, the consequence of using pure rationality without any compassion. You know, they were trying to design the most efficient ways to kill 6 million Jews. So that's about efficiency, logic, taking a rational approach to solve a problem. But somewhere along the way, they'd lost compassion. Mm-hmm. So I would have kind of the mix, and I think Paul Bloom does too. Uh, um, I think, yeah. I think he did. Um, if I could close with just a couple of uh, things, you know, back to the um, autism question. Just one is... Uh, what one thing that uh, has been brought up, you're probably aware of, uh, as a possible explanation for seeming cognitive empathy deficit in people with autism, or at least a partial explanation, is, um, you know, maybe, uh, you know, part of cognitive empathy, one technique, one thing that's involved, not the only thing, but is kind of putting yourself in the shoes of the other, say, what would I do in their shoes? If, if, if I were there and a rattlesnake approached, I'd be scared. You know, so a lot of it is a simple thought experiment where you're transplanting your basic self into their yeah. situation. One thing people have said is, well, maybe autistic people are just bad at reading non-autistic people, much the way non-autistic people are bad at reading autistic people, just because yeah. they're not. But is that something that has not yeah. been borne out by the evidence or, or is, it, um, is that at play? It's actually a whole new, very recent area of research. Uh-huh. So, so there's a concept called the double empathy problem. And it was introduced actually by an autistic researcher, Damien Milton. And it's this idea that you've articulated very clearly that we've been looking at whether autistic people struggle to understand non-autistic people. But what about the other way around? You know, mm-hmm. non-autistic people understanding autistic people. And I think Damien's absolutely right that there could be, you know, empathy is a two-way street. And we may have only been looking at, at it in, in one direction. So new research is starting to look at whether autistic people, for example, find it easier to empathize with other autistic people. Uh-huh. And, and, you know, um, I, th- I think there's a lot of work to be done here. But if we're going to, let's, let's maybe finish on a much more positive message, which is we want autistic people to be included in society. Mm -hmm. So non-autistic people have to meet them halfway. Mm -hmm. Uh, If anything, you know, the wider population needs to kind of uh, think about how can we be more inclusive? How can we welcome autistic people into every aspect of society? We haven't really touched on the fact that the majority of autistic adults are unemployed. You know, we, we focused a little bit on Elon Musk. He's really not typical. The majority of autistic people drop out of school without fulfilling their academic potential, have poor mental health because they haven't been, they haven't been supported in a compassionate way. Uh, and they're not being offered opportunities because of their disability. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think there's a big case a wider society showing more empathy towards autistic people, mm-hmm. not just expecting autistic people to be um, sort of, uh, you know, uh, empathizing with us. Mm-hmm. If there's a kind of a, a moment to think about how would we like to do things differently in the future, for any of you, your listeners today, you know, if you've got an opportunity to hire someone who's autistic, reach out to them know, offer them that opportunity. Because leaving people outside of society, leaving people unemployed and with poor mental health, which is sadly their state of play at the moment, 
is 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 it's not just uh you know the sign of an uncivilized society we're actually contributing to the harm mm-hmm. we don't it makes space for autistic people in every aspect of the, of our world. Okay, your uh, your the phrase "state of play," which you just used, remind me of one last thing that I'd like to ask you if you have a moment. It's just so uh, as you've noted, as others noted, uh, cognitive empathy theory of mind is a kind of second order representation. Um, your your uh, and one other place that shows up is in play behavior when you assume the role of uh, someone else. One thing that has been noted uh, is that uh, autistic children often don't engage in play behavior uh, to the ex- nearly the extent that other children do. That presumably could be related to this thing, um, uh, to, to the, the cognitive empathy issue, the theory of mind issue. Um, and, and I, and, you know... Uh, yeah, I mean, sorry to interrupt you, Bob. Sure just because I know we're almost at the hour, mm-hmm. but you're absolutely right that there are differences in the way autistic kids play that compared to a non-autistic or typically developing child. You know, that a lot of, a lot of play for a typically developing child is all about imagining um, the mind of the other person you're playing with, mm-hmm. entering into a drama, you know. And, you know, for autistic kids... They might be playing in a very different way. They might be building things. They might be playing to understand how something works, like um, taking something apart and reassembling it. So they're showing all kinds of intelligence in their play, but it may be different. And again, we need, you know, the message about neurodiversity is that there are many different types of brains and minds in the world. And we need to make sure that even at preschool, you know, that we make space for kids who have different learning styles, different um, interests. Um, and, and, you know, that way we won't end up with kids who feel excluded or stigmatized. Okay. All right. Well, that's a good place to end. Thank you. Uh, again, your books include The Pattern Seekers, uh, How Autism Drives Human Invention, The Science of Evil on Empathy and the Origins of Cruelty. Um, and uh, thank you for taking the time. Been a great conversation. We'll keep track of your work. Uh, do you have any other other books you're working on? Um, nothing yet to talk about publicly, but I'm always thinking. Okay. Just like you, we're always working. Yep. All right. Well, I'll let you get back to it. Thank you. Been fun. Thank you.